0: They take a 49% stake and they get 75% of profits back until that $10 billion is paid off. And from that point forward, I think they get their stake, which is 49%. Is
1: Microsoft so- Kevin O'Leary? Go! This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Douglas, that like to debate about investing content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. I'm done. I'm done, Skippy. I'm done gatekeeping. (laughs) Are you talking TikTok finance? I am done gatekeeping. The people need to know the secrets.
0: (laughs) Um... I hope you're talking TikTok investing. I am. <laughs> this, this leads exactly into what I was going to talk about. I think I can make a TikTok investing video, Doodles. So I think so. I, I, this is, I'm not claiming anything. Just, I've had a nice first two weeks of the year. One of my portfolios is up 16%. And I just did the math. If I can just repeat that performance every two weeks for the rest of the year, I can turn $10,000 into $400,000, Doegles. Let's make a cute video with like some cats and why it's going to take off.
1: I've been telling you for decades now that I've known you, you think too small. Why just extrapolate just this year? Oh, yeah. Good point. Think about 10 years from now. Think long term. Think long term.
0: (laughs) If if my performance continues, I could have all the world's wealth in
1: 7.4 years. I mean, I'm making up numbers here. but (laughs) Yeah, yeah. By the time I am Warren Buffett's age. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it's gold. It's gold. All right. We'll, we'll, put, we'll put the actual video on the sub stack on Monday. We don't need to talk anymore about it. But it's so bad. It brings laughter. It, it brings uh, laughter.
0: But so um, when I'm having a rough day, sometimes I do uh, head over to um, at TikTok Finance on or no, at TikTok Investors, sorry, on Twitter. And they're just basically stealing stuff from TikTok. And it is hilarious. This one was about what you just have to think about money coming your way.
1: You're gonna be the wealthiest person. Mm -mm. If you're only thinking it, you're not going far enough. You gotta say it aloud. (laughs) You have to think it and then say it aloud. And then it happens. And she was she's dropping F bombs, like expletives on this. That's how that's the conviction. That's the level of conviction. (laughs) All right. Let's transition us.
0: Yeah. Okay. So we're gonna transition to Tesla. It's just too interesting not to talk about, but it ties into a lot of other things. I I just talked about how um, the past few weeks have been good for value stocks. What's crazy about that is, and we've talked about this on the show, the valuation spread between uh, growth stocks and value stocks is basically at an all-time low. That That's flipped recently. And the value community that I hang out with has been freaking out because We're not used to good performance. It's been a long, dry, harsh winter doodles. But here's the stat I want to talk about. And then I'll tell you how this relates to Tesla, because this is purely reversion to the mean as the hypothesis. And I think what's happening with Tesla Tesla negatively is purely reversion to the mean as well. Sorry. Have we ever talked about reversion to the meme?
1: I'm having a rough morning, man. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, no, no. No, no, you said, you said mean, I just thought about reversion to the meme. And I don't know if that's ever been a thing you can, you can keep going, but I'm going to do something with that.
0: <laughs> so our boy, Drew Dixon did a breakdown. He's, he's also an, what I consider an expert on Tesla, but he did a breakdown on this valuation spread using the Ken French data set. Ken French is in pharma in French. Uh, Ken French is up at Dartmouth. And The last six times the valuation spread has been this great. Here's what the next five years' performance looks like for value stocks up 20%, up 60%, up 40%, up 20%, up 50%. And most recently in 2009, over the next five years, it actually lost 2%, took us all the way back down to where we are today. So we're more than two sigma away from the standard measure. And when that's happened before, you have, Five-year performance of roughly fifty to sixty percent. It's a great time to
1: be in value stocks, Douglas. At least time. not a bad time. At least not a bad time. Do you know how they measure value stocks? Is that is like a Russell or do yeah. they use some kind of index, something like that? Um,
0: okay. A lot of this is still based on price to book, which isn't the best metric, yeah. but but still, yeah, it's still. pretty old school. But directionally, it tells you where you're in going. Principle. And the fun part about these data sets is like. You can go back to 1921 often. Yeah. Uh, this one's only back to the 50s. But where that leads us is the Tesla investors just losing their mind, Dougals, because the performance of that stock has been rough. Now, why does, <laughs> True. It, why, True. Why does everyone think the performance of that stock has been so rough?
1: They throw out Twitter,
0: right? I, yeah. As we talked about Musk, before. Musk is distracted. He's he's has his mind elsewhere. No, what's actually happening here? Um and we talked about this in a previous episode called Tesla versus the world. The market cap of Tesla was greater than the market cap of all the other legacy car makers. Many have been around for hundreds of years or at least a hundred years combined. Like the valuation just got crazy here and people said well, Tesla's not a car company. Like Tesla's a technology company. So that's how we're gonna buy the thing. Wall Street Journal did a brilliant article this week. It's by Rebecca Elliott. And the title really says it all. What if Tesla is just a car company? Go figure. Go go figure.
1: So it's powerful. Uh, I mean, because you you're right though. Like the Justifications for Tesla's valuation were coming out the wise easy, yeah. right there was the uh, it's really about the batteries and batteries are going to fuel the future of the world, so the cars, whatever it's a platform play. there's so many things that you can use to justify multiples that car companies don't get
0: mm-hmm. and you, you can sell software and services yep. yep, because it's it's always connected. so what this article details is the competition i mean i always like to talk about when your profit margins are great and when consumers gravitate to your product what that does for your competitors and so it talks about all the tesla talent that's left that's now it's places like ford and jeep um it's like even those people's criticism of the company and saying there's one guy that works at ford it cracks me up he he basically is saying yeah but tesla's designs are so basic like i love the technology but i was never really into what the cars looked like and at ford we get to be more creative with that you have the Mm. ford ceo saying tesla's awesome we're we have learned so much from them that's why we're hiring their talent but our bread and butter is elsewhere like our bread and butter is in trucks and mustangs and those sort of things so we can make this whole different set of Amazing vehicles with amazing like technology, stealing their playbook. But then we can go and do our own niches where they can't even touch us. And the price points are something that's crazy. Basically, just this weekend, uh, within the past week, Tesla reduced some of their the prices of their models by up to twenty percent. I mean, I have a friend that just bought a Model Y. Right, the price of that would have been sixty three thousand dollars like three weeks ago. And now they lower the price and it's eligible for a tax credit. Now it'd be 45. Can you imagine if you just bought something and effectively $20,000 disappeared in the air? I mean, I think that tells you a story. It tells you that their margins are clearly under pressure. In terms of stock performance, I just wanted to pull up a graph. In the last year, they're down uh, 66, 67% roughly, all the way from high flying in the 380 range down to 122.
1: <laughs> I mean, that's it's it's killer. It's killer. I was seeing this. Uh, Hold on. Let me let me look this up. I think it was in the like big picture, you know, that um, the Ritholtz uh, wealth management guy whose name I can't remember right now. Oh, Ritholtz. Um, it's, it's Barry Ritholtz. <laughs> Barry Ritholtz. His uh, his blog he had this image, I'm going to look it up while we're talking here, but he had this image where he was showing the, he called it meme stocks. It was like a, well, he didn't call it. It was a graph from someone else, but it was like a table of meme stocks and where they hit their maxes and where they are right now. Uh, And they weren't all meme stocks in my mind, but it just, there were some, we know intellectually, there were some wild swings that went down. And looking at this, I, I pulled it up now. Looking at this, I just there's again some of these I didn't really see as meme stocks. It's just really w- the wild rides. I'll give a couple examples here. um You've got so a couple knowns first. GameStop hit a peak of one twenty seventy five. It's one hundred twenty dollars seventy five cents. Now eighteen forty six. Uh, AMC seventy two dollars sixty two cents. Now four dollars seven cents. Beyond Meat two hundred twenty one dollars twelve dollars and thirty one cents now uh clover health $28.85 now 93 cents just I'm just throwing it out 93 like, cents 93 cents uh yeah so it has some good company
0: Oh it definitely does uh, a few more stops from this and then we'll move on number of electric vehicles available for purchase in the US 5 years ago there were 18 today there's 53 yep um and some of those are re- are being received with rave reviews, some of the Hyundai and Kia stuff, um, some of the Ford stuff. Like there's so much competition in this space. This article details uh companies I've never heard of before that are going after Tesla's high-end market. And then the long-term well-established automotive players seem to be going after the lower end of the market. Their vehicles are typically less expensive. There's just competition everywhere. And the other stat I wanted to mention. I talked a little about their performance. Their peak market cap was $1.24 trillion. And their current market cap is about $390 billion. In my opinion, well, not even my opinion. Like if you go to someone like Drew Dixon, who really follows the stock, I've seen him do a back of the envelope analysis that says the stock might be worth 55 bucks a share. Again, it's currently at 122 yeah. and that's down 70-ish percent from where it is. That sounds about right. Another 50% drop and it's probably appropriate. It sounds about right. I mean, and even appropriate is probably like it's being valued as a hot, popular yeah, yeah. uh company with lots of growth prospects. Yeah, I'm because not Because even cheap. though they Yeah, yeah, that's my point. Yeah. It makes me think about a blue ocean strategy. To, to get real. It's like I'm sitting in in a cube
1: 15 years back <laughs> yeah,
0: hearing yeah, exactly. about blue ocean strategy.
1: Exactly. So uh, the the quick hit here is blue ocean strategy was, it, you're right. I mean, it was like 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, yeah. um, a couple of professors from NCI were talking about this. And the thought was, if you take the ocean, the ocean, when it's wide open and beautiful and amazing, it's blue. But then, and to pick, say that that's an industry, for example, then when there's a lot of competitors, there's blood in the water, right? Everyone's out for for guts and glory. And so the ocean turns red. And most industries, as they mature, they become red oceans. So they're really, really competitive. But if you think about what the next wave of innovation might be, what the new trends are, you can then take what that industry thinks today and like evolve it into this blue ocean strategy. So it's like just thinking additionally. And the reason I thought about this. So one, there's a book called Blue Ocean Strategy. Up to you whether or not you get it. I don't eh, it. But like, (laughs) um, But but yeah, but the point, the reason I'm bringing it up is because I think the whole blue ocean strategy idea with regard to Tesla was probably that this was this was like new, right? This was a whole new avenue that other people couldn't necessarily touch, and then everyone was like, "Now nah, we are gonna touch it," like, and maybe it wasn't a blue ocean after all, right? It's just like it was a story around a blue ocean, Um, but the trend was already fairly, if not known, I think like uh, thought about. And then Tesla was so public around, like there was so much jazz around Tesla. If you think about it, if Tesla were like a quieter organization, right, yeah. that didn't have as much fanfare, Elon Musk wasn't all up in the, the Twitters all the time and everything. They may have had a longer runway um, with a lead, but there's so much fanfare, s- such high multiples that it, it does, to your point of your, what you brought up earlier, like it, it then basically dares competition to come in because they see so many dollars.
0: Well, yeah, you, if you're that public about your success, it creates enemies or competition, right? Just be, I'm going to squeeze in one more thing that I I wasn't going to do, but you reminded me of it. So when we talk about mean reversion and uh, two sigmas away from multiple and everything, I'm in the middle of a book. I'm sure this is why all our listeners listen to the show. The book is called the misbehavior of markets. Have you read this one? Uh,
1: not that initially comes to mind. It sounds like a thing I would have read though, but not that initially yeah. comes to mind.
0: So, bernard Mandelbrot, I'm not saying that quite right. Uh, Polish born French American mathematician and polymath. This book is dense, Stugels. Let me just tell you, <laughs> the, I'm reading this book for the listeners. I do not recommend you pick this book up, but man, does he do a fabulous job of distilling down how. Markets were originally understood and modeled mathematically is based on a Gaussian curve. And in a Gaussian curve, the large majority of stuff happens two sigma away from the mean. And it's very rare to get something that's three sigma away. And this is the whole six sigma design process and everything else is like, you get to that 99.7% of things happening there. So as mathematics around financial markets developed, people said, Hey, look at this data. The guessing curve seems to fit. Everything's great. We built our, all our risk measures on top of that. When he actually looks at the data using his incredible math skills, which is why the book is so dense. He goes, wait, this isn't true at all. I see stuff at nine Sigma. I see stuff at 24 Sigma. So this is where the fat tails discussion comes in. Right. Mm, And it's basically like, what actually happens in financial markets, it's something that looks like a Gaussian curve, but then there's all sorts of events that are happening way, way away from Six Sigma. And this is the um, complex nature of events getting compounded on top of other events. And that's all I'm going to talk about because it gets really dense. But it's I think the main takeaway from that book is it's so important to realize that how you think about the rest of your life or how you think about building a car or these events that happen normally you can't apply that to financial markets because when things go bad in financial markets you know the margin calls happen on top of the exchange rate risk on top of the human nature freaking out that like these things compound so rapidly where you get something that's a 24 sigma event that basically the mathematical modeling would say there's like it's a one in 14 trillion chance of happening but it actually happens
1: fairly regularly in financial markets. Very well said. And I just Googled this book. So I have not read it. Like I'm looking okay. at it. I have not read this book. What I love is the the multiple sales points <laughs> that, that at each stage, more and more people get turned away. So someone would see the misbehavior of markets and be like, uh, good. I'll read on. Yeah. Be like, maybe. Yeah. Uh, maybe. Then the, the, the next line is, a fractal view of financial turbulence you're like oh, okay so now that's you've lost l- like, another less excited, yeah. yeah you lost another 20 percent. then they're like okay if we haven't sold you yet yale math that's exactly <laughs> what
0: reading the book is like it then like, gets done. more and more dense all the time and it's uh also pretty long so only skip skippy it goes, is left but remember <laughs> remember that markets have fat tails it's an important
1: takeaway yeah i'm i'm gonna read it though it sells me <laughs> like it so <laughs> I mock it, but then I read it. Uh, thank you. All right. Oh, do I want to go? So I'm dipping in the fishbowl. Do I want to go more decline and despair first, or talk about a spry Warren Buffett?
0: Let's go to de- decline and despair because yes. I can
1: piggyback on top of that. With some more All fun. right, that's the right answer. Okay, decline and despair. So we're going to talk about Japan, and specifically the lost decade of Japan. And we've we've talked Japan a few times here or there, right on the show and discussed uh, the big bubble that happened there and as well as, I don't know if we've referred to it this way, but the decline, the lost decade. Uh, but I read this piece over some time the last couple of weeks that I thought was a pretty cool summary of it overall. It's titled Japan's Bubble Burst, The Party That Wasn't Supposed to End. And this is on kanochivalue.com. So... Before we even get into the lost decade, I want to give a few more stats into the buildup that happened before this lost decade because Japan gone straight cray financially. And it's like, it's epic, like so epic. So here we go. Let's talk GDP first. In 1970, number one country in the world ranking by GDP is what?
0: 1970. I guess the U.S.
1: There you go. There you go. That's right. U.S. at $1.1 trillion, had 31.4% of the global GDP at that point. Japan at that point was number four, $213 billion at 6.2% of global GDP. Okay. So this is 1970. 1970 is kind of when Japanese financial-ish, like started to, we started to see it take, well, not we, I wasn't a lot, but started to see it take off, right? Um, So now let's fast forward to 1995. So this is 25 years later. Still number one, United States at 7.6 trillion. So the US went about 7x where it was 25 years before. Like, good job, US. Japan is now number two and has gone from that roughly 200 billion figure to now $5.5 trillion in GDP. So 17.7%. It went from 6.2%. Of global gdp to 17.7 percent share that's massive global. in a 25 year span it's massive that's, yeah it's unheard of um i'm going to give a few so that's gdp now let's talk a little bit about stocks
0: well so you and i were both really young in this time frame but i mean don't you remember this like mystique around like sony sony or, it like electronics coming from japan it was like man there was this Oh, if you can afford a Sony, uh, or it, it, but it, the reputation related to the whole country almost of like it's such
1: quality, yeah, um, cutting edge tech. It's where electronics came from, period, like, period, right? Because you yeah. had on one side, you had, uh, you, what you were talking about, Sony, you had the Walkman, the Discman, all like all the everything, anything you watch something on, like came from Japan. You had on the video game side, you had a uh, Nintendo, right? Which owned the day at the time with the NES and the Super Nintendo, yeah. right? Yep. And then, so electronics just straight up came from Japan, like period. There was, there was no question about it. So yeah, absolutely. There was that mystique in the background kind of, I didn't really know about this at the time, but I'm gonna act like I did in the background. were also like the, um, what's happening with cars and like vehicles. I know it was also happening then so i i was aware of japanese vehicles but i wasn't driving or anything so like that wasn't yeah. really a thing that impacted my life but the consumer side did okay so here here are a few stats i'm um, starting 1970 japanese stock market dropped by 15 percent so it is what it is then up 36 percent the next year up 92 percent the year after that then then there was the 73 74 crash down 72 so sorry down 17 percent down 11 then up 13% up 15% you, then you start this like this wild ride uh, throughout the 80s really kicking in in 1983 i'm just going to start reading so i won't name the years but just start reading from 1983 to 1989 the annual increases in the japanese stock market okay starting in 1983 23% 17% 13% 44% 15% 40% 29% that is from 83 to 89 the japanese stock market. Yep. We talked, talked about what happened with GDP. Crazy. Yeah, it's this this is this from, is for
0: memory I think in 89 I think you probably have the stuff in front of you. The japanese
1: stock market it represents 44% of the world value for stock markets. I I don't have that right in front of me, but it was something like that. Yeah. It was it was yeah. Massive. And I don't know if you're just smarter than I realized, but you're blowing
0: my mind here. I think <laughs> It's recency bias. I think there's basically a parallel with what happened with Tesla as a stock and almost Japan as a country.
1: We'll see if that holds true. I mean, yeah, it's 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 quite fascinating. So that's the buildup. So now we have you have the the background, the lost decade, right? That's about to come up. And I'm gonna give you some bullet points on then what started to occur. And some of this people will probably, some people will remember. Like you'll see some analogous behaviors and issues to what we've, we've seen otherwise with one really key difference or a few key differences, but one really key difference is how long this took. Like, that's a, that's a really big difference. Well, okay. so the reason I, my personal opinion on why it takes so long
0: is because of how crazy it got. Um, in this article that it's called the biggest bubble in history. Mm-hmm. Now, I think there'd be some debates about that because there's been some massive bubbles out there. But the CAPE ratio in Japan at its peak was like 100. No other stock market in recent past has reached a CAPE ratio. No other major stock market of more than 50. Like this was twice the biggest bubbles that have happened in major developed markets anywhere. So as that pops, there, I think there's just lots of layers,
1: lots of cliffs to fall off on your way down, which is why it lasts a decade and why it's so painful. Yeah, and what exactly right? And what always goes into bubbles is you do have these layers that you're talking about because people start betting on the bubble continuing. They start taking out debt. They start becoming riskier and riskier. So as you unfold this thing, it, it's devastating. As we start off, Japan's on the verge of passing the U.S. potentially, right? Still a little bit of distance, but as the world's largest economy, okay. So that's the backdrop. So what starts happening is in '89, stock market starts to come back down to earth a little bit, right? So you you've got uh 90 was down 39%, 91 down 4%, 92 down 24%. Like stock market coming down. That's rough. That's, that's yeah. brutal. Like that's brutal. And that's brutal and it's like the beginning, right? That's just that's just the start. So you got these asset prices coming down. Um in about 93, so at the end of that 3-year hit. The end of 93 is when the economy actually starts freezing. So during this point the the economy was slowing. But it hadn't fully grasped like how serious this was. And by freezing, I mean like it's hard to find jobs, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So then one of the, the biggest roadblocks, according to this piece here, was all of the, again, analogous, like the non-performing loans that you have, so like bad loans that were made by Japanese banks. And the Japanese banks eventually decided they were going to start to try and collect the loans. But lo and behold, when they go to get the the money from the businesses there is none yeah and so they have these bad loans the businesses themselves were effectively insolvent and so there was no money to get there and the this this is where the hu- the real human behavior comes in that ex- exacerbates everything and so there's no money there but the Japanese banks didn't want to they didn't want to say anything so what they did and this is partially so uh the banks didn't want to admit their own issues and i i don't know the background of this but according to this piece the uh employees of the banks were on the hook in many cases for the bad loans too i don't know how that works but so there was this like double double up situation where the banks didn't want to go under and then the employees themselves would be ruined If well i, I mean that's more common than i think most people
0: realize when you're even a mid-sized company a lot of times you're asking for
1: collateral from the owners for debt so i think that's a fairly common thing and so then the next common thing is so now but eventually the banks had to say all right we ain't got no months so uh banks are starting to like uh, write off the bad loans big losses come up and that sets off your typical cycle right then in 1995 bailouts start so the government bailed out this bank called i'm gonna get this wrong but the juicen bank uh j-u-s-e-n and here's when there's some corruption so the minister the ministry of finance the or the minister of finance who um, leads the ministry of finance um had this secret deal on the back end they go all right juicen bank i'm gonna get the government to bail you out on the other side i get a piece so the public is like livid that there was a bailout in the first place and then this is like a fact that comes out. And so people are just like, like distrust exists yep. wholesale at this point. Right. Okay. And so you're now you're like, okay, now we're at the, the trough of despair. Things start to go up into the right from here. <laughs> no, then there is a massive earthquake that Ooh. hits right. Causing hundred billion dollars in damage. And so people are like the, the economy is at its like wits end earthquake hits. Things are really bad. So the Bank of Japan, the equivalent of the Fed in the US, the Bank of Japan yeah. cuts interest rates to 0.5%. And they cut interest rates so they could start to spark some demand. I'm kind of joking, but
0: have they been at
1: 0.05% for the next I actually, 30 they, years? I think they went negative at one point. Yeah. I think I even recently like... they, were, they were negative. So they go 0.5%. And so in their minds, they're like, okay, we're gonna like demand's gonna start going out. People are gonna loan money and whatnot. And the banks it's kind of like what you've talked about the great depression people that went through the great depression before banks started turning away people they were like no yeah. we like we actually we think all y'all all y'all consumers can't pay nothing so we're not loaning to you because you're all a bunch of junk and so the banks don't loan out money and so the 0.5 doesn't really do much for the economy anymore and then this bewilders the crap out of me the government then takes this and says i think we should raise taxes so <laughs> You have a basically a a whole country of people that have no money. (laughs) What sort of stimulus is that, man? (laughs) I don't know. This this is I have no explanation for this. The government raises taxes. Then the Asian financial crisis hits, not because of that. But Asian financial crisis was a currency crisis that happened in the late 90s. Right. I think it sparked in like Thailand or something like that. So the Asian financial crisis hits. So things are just boom, boom, boom. And then finally, banks collapse. And this was like in the some of the 2001 ish period, like the banks just collapsed. So that is the lost decade that like 1993 to 2002. And if you all recall, remember 1990 uh, minus 39% down 4% down 26%. Uh, so in the middle there, you had a couple like positive years of, for example, 0.74%. So you had, you had a couple of positive years in there, but then in 96 to 98 you get -3%, -21%, -9%. Then you get a plus +37%. Something must have, happened. this must have been when they cut yeah. interest rates or something like that and everyone goes gets excited. But 2000 to 2002, -27%, -24% and -19%. This decade this is like in in the US as we discussed, right? We're like does the does the stock market ever go down the year after it went down prior? <laughs> Look at this
0: it's such a cautionary tale so one i want a clarification when you say the banks collapsed there at the very end what do you mean you mean their stock prices collapsed no they went out of business done donzo donzo gosh this is why i think it's uh, this is why part of me roots for the stock market to continue the u.s stock market to continue to come way down because if the bubble goes on forever the pullback in the bubble then lasts for a decade. And the ramifications of that just psychologically Mm -hmm. are like devastating. I mean, you end up with a whole generation of people that were coming of age in Japan, um, during this time that I'm sure their financial lives are different because of how they lived through this and what it meant for them, um, in their day-to-day life. So I don't wish this on anyone, but it's a great thing to study
1: and you're i mean you're so right psychology has so much to do with the macro like stock market as a whole right because as we've talked about a few times there's the belief that when you have the crash like the US will come back yep and if you never believe that or if you, like fully like it doesn't because it means people have to deploy their own personal savings their own finances to buy stock and institutions have to deploy Their finances to buy stock. And if not, you get, I can't remember what it is right now, but the Japanese just savings rate, like savings account rate is wicked high Mm -hmm. because people aren't investing and don't necessarily trust, I think in a lot of cases, the companies that exist there, they just hold under their money. It's the equivalent of under the mattress because they're getting 0% interest (laughs) effectively. So it's just, there's like, there's nothing that comes from it. That's what happens when you get the biggest bubble ever. One of my favorite stats on the,
0: on the value side, and this is a, an obscure study that um, I've seen a couple of times is that value investing still worked in Japan during this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that seems to paint a really good story, but even if it did, man, even if my portfolio, like I'm living in Japan in the nineties and I'm making a few bucks each year, the, the still bigger macro picture of how that impacts your friends and families and coworkers, like I still think you'd walk away with a terrible scar from this. How could you not? Yeah. I want to pull something out of the fishbowl that in a way I think is related. And it it's a breakdown of uh, public transit systems in the U S post COVID they've, they mostly focused on New York and San Francisco. um, But there's a few other ones in there and This whole article, I just picture like a credit analyst underwriting bonds for the New York Metropolitan Transit Authority in, let's say, 2017, right? And they're just like, this is what ridership is. These are the investments we're going to make. Like, this is the easiest analysis I'm ever going to do. No one's ever going to stop taking the subway in New York City. Right? No one's ever going to stop taking the BART in San Francisco. Well, imagine what happened, Doogles. COVID came and ridership is down. The entire economic model of these public transit systems is built on ridership. So let's talk New York. We'll compare number of subway riders in 2019 to 2022. This is the four weeks following Columbus Day. Monday through Friday in 2019 was around 6 million riders a day. Um, The weekends were around... Say two and a half million riders a day. Now, uh, Monday and Friday are about two and a half million. And the midweek, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday is maybe at four million. You're still down like 33% from where you were three years ago and so where the you had days. been. Yeah. The peak like, days are down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the weekends are more like two million. So, big picture there is everything's down. Now, what happens when ridership goes down is you cash less checks for riders, which goes to maintenance and upkeep. It goes to the number of trains you can run when you run less trains, or when you have less populated trains, crime increases on your trains, which means you need a greater investment in your metro system. Like you get the downward spiral. It's pretty easy to grasp, right? Well, they're all in the downward spiral right now. (laughs) Now Congress has passed some funding to help bridge the gap but i think you see you know the the classic example of people moving to the inner city it thriving for 20 to 30 years before people start to migrate to the suburbs and then the inner city often decays crime increases and then you know you have to figure out how to bring it back i think you see that happening with public transit systems in a way that was not planned for and it's really difficult to address because of course you see the downward spiral happening here. I don't know. I find this fascinating. This is one of those like real estate type um, things. That's just, I'm so invested in it always. And I thought this article did a great job of
1: laying it out. Yeah. I I think it's a, it's terribly interesting. And to your same point, it did make me think about SLG, SL green realty that you, you sent my way back in 2020 or something like that. Um, which okay. right now is is hammered with like a nine percent dividend or something like yep. that. And it's effectively, does the does the city get revitalized anytime soon is the question. Mm-hmm. My my bet like ever in the long term is like yes, absolutely. Whether or not that comes true, we'll see. But like that would be my bet long term is yes, absolutely. But over what time period? Yeah, um, but exactly. this is just another data point.
0: And so then that's just the public transit ramifications of people commuting less and the downward spiral of the people that that really want to go back and commute then having to deal with increased crime or worse schedules um for trains and then it becoming more taxing for them to commute and and it continuing down the ramifications of that to the inner city or the the corporate uh headquarters is Less people come into the office, which means the delis that serve those people and the coffee shops, right? They end up either really struggling or going out of business. And you just see that it eventually impacts the city as well. The question I want to ask, I don't know that there's a good answer, but the question I want to ask you is like, how do you fix this?
1: As I was reading this piece, I was thinking about that same question and obviously don't have the answer. Um, but the the questions that were going through my mind is, is like, how do you? Why do what are the various reasons that people would congregate in a city? Because there was so much focus around offices, right? And coming right. in for offices. And I was just thinking, like, what else? Like, what else could you put on to revitalize the city? And there are various things that people would do in specific neighborhoods um, to revitalize. You can think about like, I'm again, I don't have any answers, so this is lame, <laughs> but <laughs> I was thinking about like a uh, concerts uh fairs like just starting like investing in like entertainment and gathering of people which people are more and more willing to do now maybe not as many but just like completely do that to get people because my thought is while some things like that can seem like one time sometimes it's just about uh sparking the psychological influence and getting people like getting the operating muscle going right of getting used to leaving your house, going into the city, feeling okay with it. Those first few times people in New York that I talked about that were commuting in like every now and again, uh, Mm -hmm. if you go back a year ago or so, they just started going back um, to just to go into the city for whatever reason. And they were like, "Ugh!" like getting on the long Island railroad is like nasty. Like how did I ever do this? Right. And I, but I, I think once you get people doing that a few times, they're like, Oh, okay. Now it's just, it's like the old normal again. And if you can just have enough things that people are used to, to coming in, then I think it could help.
0: I used to be on a transportation board for a municipality. And it was always the thought process was always like, cause funding is always tough. So it was, if you build it, they will come type things. Um, and everyone's envious of a DC or a New York or a San Francisco, right. But the, what is rare is if it's already built and functions pretty well, and then a shock to the system happens like a pandemic that changes people's core behaviors and resets. So yeah, I don't have any solutions, but I'm excited to watch it because hopefully some of these municipalities take different and unique approaches. Like hopefully San Francisco tries something that's different than New York and we can watch that play out in real time. And, and hopefully they have some success because this could be core to the desirability of a city. Yeah, is the public
1: transit options fully agreed? Okay, can I can I hit on uh, a young virile Warren Buffett? Can <laughs> <laughs> you ever? Yeah. Uh, so I came across this Substack post, pretty awesome, I think. And the uh, so the Substack post, it's by to give credit where credit's due. It's called uh, Neck- "Necker's Mines and Markets." Frederick Gieschen. I'm sorry if I got your name wrong there. Put this yeah, he's out. He's great. Nectar value
0: on like all the social media stuff. I've
1: hit, I've hit on like one or two things before, or like not hit on, but like read one or two things before, but hasn't caught my eye as much as this. And this goes back to a 1979 piece on Warren Buffett. And what I find super cool about that, it, Dougal's cool, again not just a Bieber <laughs> cool. What I find super cool about that is you're going back to. Buffett in the kind of the early days, the real early days of Buffett are a couple decades before this, but at this point, Buffett's like early forties, like something like that, right? So it's, I don't know, your, your core Buffett, I'll, let me, I'm going to read something to you. This is the description by the, uh, the author of this piece, which is John Train and the piece, the piece back in 1979 was called Warren Buffett, The Investor's Investor. It was in Financial World and John Train put it together. And one paragraph starts Buffett, a genial, ruddy, muscular man. I won't even read the rest of the sentence. (laughs) Like there's there's no description, and there shouldn't be. Buffett's in his 90s. There should not be a description that says that. But this is the time period. I just want to transport you back. This is the time period we're talking about. And I'm gonna I'm gonna pull out a, a couple quotes and please feel free to interrupt me, right? So we can go into what might be interesting about them. One is Going back to Buffett's earliest partnership when Buffett that Buffett started in his 20s. It says if you had put $10,000 in Buffett's original investing partnership at inception in 1956, you would have collected about $300,000 by the time he dissolved it at the end of 1969. Diggles. I just told you my year-to-day performance. If we just
0: extrapolate that out, I can crush this. Yeah, this this is like nonsense compared to what you're <laughs> going you you can do. Nonsense. Joke, jokes aside, that's awesome performance.
1: 30 He's X, a superstar. Yeah. A 30x return in 13 years, right? Um, so as this says, Buffett in 1969 dissolved that initial that initial partnership. What Buffett says about this in this piece uh, is this. He, he sends a letter to his partners, and it says, this is a quote, I am out of step with present conditions. When the game is no longer played your way, it is only human to say the new approach is all wrong, bound to lead to trouble, and so on. On one point, however, I am clear. I will not abandon a previous approach whose logic I understand, although I find it difficult to apply, even though it may mean foregoing large and apparently easy profits to embrace an approach which I don't fully understand, and have not practiced successfully you've got me fired
0: up today this is buffett saying if he's investing in the 90s and everyone else is making or in the 80s and everyone else is making money in japan he's going i don't know what's happening in japan those valuations don't make sense i can't put my money there like this is brilliant but it's so rare for someone to say oh, listen I, I know how i made money in the old world this new expensive world basically
1: like i can't make money there anywhere it's amazing yeah it's amazing and the discipline it takes which he then a different part of the piece uh it doesn't talk about the discipline but this is the the what's behind the discipline buffett's saying the enormous advantage the independent investor has buffett says is that he can stand at the plate he or she in the parlance of our times now he she or they in the parlance of our times now at the plate and wait forever for the perfect pitch if, if he wants it to come in exactly two inches above his navel and nowhere else, he can stand there indefinitely until an easy one is served up. Stock market investment is the only business of which this is true. You can not only wait for the bargain, but for the particular one that you understand and know to be a bargain. Gold. You, you got to wait for that Iowa-based recreational vehicle manufacturer. You just, you just <laughs> got to. <laughs> yeah, you you got to wait for you got to wait for that 200 P.E. stock to come down to 50. <laughs> that's what you, that's, that's you got to wait for. Uh, all right. I got one more in here, which I, I love here. The portfolio of Buffett's partnership was often too concentrated in a few issues, some not readily marketable for an investment counselor or fund manager, but not out of line with what might be done by a conservative professional with his own money. Buffett now likes to own a dozen or so securities and characterizes diversification as the Noah's Ark approach. You buy two of everything in sight and end up with a zoo instead of a portfolio. <laughs> I What I like about this is like, so I, I read these other, like the other quotes and whatnot. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, that's the investor, disciplined investor Buffett. And I read this and I was like, this is just Buffett. Like he still has this curmudgeony, like he's transferred some of it or like maybe not transferred. This also comes out in Charlie right? That you got to like dig, you got to have a one little dig at somebody else. But I really liked this idea of the Noah's Ark approach, where you're just like buying
0: two of everything. There's another quote I read from Buffett this week. And I I can't remember if it's this or another place. But he said, like, diversification is for people that don't know what they're doing effectively. Like, if you know what you own, and know it's true value, then diversification just hurts your returns. Now, again, Buffett is Michael Jordan, and you can't play basketball like Michael Jordan. So I'm not saying Buffett's diversification approach is right for you, but you and I both run fairly concentrated portfolios in part because we believe like, you know, this is Howard Marks, right? To beat the market, you have to be right and you have to be different. So if you buy a few, if you buy a hundred stocks that meet your methodology, effectively you get this diversification. That's just a
1: zoo in Profits its language here <laughs> yeah and what's not negative in there because it can given human psychology when people are told that they don't know what they're doing they then try and prove that they do yeah that, that's that's what people do in this world the rule is that you don't know what you're doing the market is fairly random on any given day human psychology is hard etc so for the for most people by the diversified index, like we talk about this all the time, right it's not it's not a bad thing, and in fact that is you knowing what you're doing, given your own situation in many occasions. so i I just I wanted to say that because oftentimes it can be like if you don't know what you're doing, that's bad so now prove it. and that's not the case with with investing in my view absolutely, I absolutely agree. <laughs> there's a lot that we can go into there,
0: but yeah, can I grab one more t- one more thing out of my fishbowl? Oh, yeah. Quick hit here, um, I don't think the deal's finalized, but it's been rumored that Microsoft's gonna buy forty nine percent of open AI. yep the thing I liked about this is one I was mentioning like a couple months ago that uh, I felt like this could be a a massive advantage for a search engine and clearly Bing has been a laggard for a long time so um, I think it makes it's a good risk to take from Microsoft's perspective. It's also I think rumored to be ten Billion dollars, which is kind of nothing for Microsoft. But I liked how they're again rumored to have structured the deal. They take a 49% stake and they get 75% of profits back until that 10 billion is paid off. And from that point forward, I think they get their stake, which is 49%. Is Microsoft Kevin (laughs) O'Leary? Doesn't it sound like Shark Tank?
1: (laughs) Yes.
0: (laughs) But like, I just thought that was fairly creative and, uh, they hedged a little bit of their risk and the guys at OpenAI, AI, I'm sure like, yeah, we'll take the money. I think it could end up being a nice partnership,
1: uh, just from afar. I liked how they structured it. It's fascinating. I also love independent of how this turns out. I love Microsoft of the last, uh, 10 years. Yeah. Let's call it. I mean, that's it. It's kind of the hotness, but Satya took over in 14 or something like that, I think. So like roughly that's, like I mean, I love the Satya, um, yeah. take
0: because he, like, he immediately said, Oh, all our office stuff is going to be available on, um, Apple products. Like we are a software company and we're not going to be stingy about who can use our software depending on what p- product they prefer. They've just taken a lot of really smart bets during that time. And not all of them work, have worked out. But like, again, 10 billion bucks for Microsoft is almost nothing.
1: Yep. And the potential of this technology is massive. It's a really smart move. Yeah, it could turn out to be, just from my memory, which means gonna, this is going to be wrong, maybe a top two in a Microsoft investment of the last 20 years. Because if you recall when, when Apple was on its deathbed, yeah, Microsoft threw change in there, and at that point, chump change as well because Apple was so cheap. I don't know what they ended up doing with that, so I don't know where you know what the return was, but probably pretty solid. Uh, and then this is also like again what you said, chump change.
0: And then the last thing on Chat uh, GPT, I I'm on like a nonprofit board, and we um, used to have a grant writer, and so there was some discussion this week of if we should. Uh, try and fill a position for grant writer. And I was like, guys, no, I'll, I'll write a grant for you right now. I typed it into OpenAI, and literally the grant was better than we could have, that we like could have hired uh, a person to write grants. And 15 seconds later, we're good to go. We can send it off wherever
1: we need to send it off. It's amazing technology. I keep telling you, man, get Aladdin up in here. We've got a whole new world. <laughs> Okay, I I've one last thing. It's just a quote. All right. It is just a quote. So Sam Bankman-Fried came out in the past week <laughs> and wrote a Substack post. So everyone, if you're not if you're not familiar with this, I'm going to let you know. In the US, when you are arrested, there's something called uh being read your Miranda rights, right? Which is the police officer is telling you all your rights that you have, it's obligated They tell you this so that you can understand. One of those things is you have the right to remain silent. And anything you say can and will be used against you in the court of law. Some people don't understand what those words mean. One of those people is Sam Megman-Fried. So we, we've already talked about all his jibber-jabber. He's been coming out, doing interviews, doing all that stuff. He decided, you know what? Video can be faked. I'm going to put it in writing. So he decides to write this Substack post that is... It's like the true story of what went down from his memory. So many times during this post, he says, well, they took all my documents. So, but from what I remember, and there's like a graph, like how, from what I remember, here are the exact numbers that came. But anyway,
0: he just, his memory,
1: he took his memory, put it in an Excel spreadsheet and then built graphs. Exactly. So he does this. I'm just going to pull one quote from it. The whole thing is what it is. I'm going to pull one quote. Because I read this and I went, if I didn't believe tomfoolery and the rest of it, now I'm, this says it all. He talks about how uh, Alameda, the risk management of Alameda wasn't as good as it should have been. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> but, 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 then, but then he says, okay, but in the summer of 2022, Alameda finally put substantial hedges. Okay, that's the start of this sentence. The end of it is in some combination of bitcoin ethereum and qqq okay, no. so 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 his his like comeback for but then we got hedges in place were <laughs> the riskiest assets not the riskiest but a oh, ba- pretty solid i mean pretty,
0: the riskiest stuff that's commonly consumed almost is like you you can get riskier but (laughs) i mean that's so he bought qqq what seven before the 70 drawdown i don't
1: follow qqq closely but all those stocks have been crushed right like yeah summer summer of 22 wasn't the bottom it bottomed out in like september or something like that of this year so it was it probably had another 30 percent drop i would say after uh after this point
0: (laughs) i have a challenge with sbf i um you have one
1: one challenge a lot Uh, i just don't think anything he says is worth my time no and if you haven't read this piece like you don't need to (laughs) i had to (laughs) he just kills me man like it
0: it i I now get vibes of... Um, and listen, I don't like to throw shade. I'm sure, whatever. I, I'm sure he's a nice enough guy with not terrible intentions. Don't, but... don't, don't. <laughs> okay, so he, at this point, he's just like the kid that thinks he's too smart that has always talked to the science teacher. You know, like he doesn't turn in the science project on time, but he, he's always found his way to weasel's way out of that to like get to the next yeah. thing. And it's just like no what you did is incredibly serious impacts thousands of people's financial lives they still the the team they've brought in is still saying like we don't even know who we owe and how much we owe like how bad does your accounting have to be that you run an exchanging you don't even know how much you owe people
1: Um, i know and this i said i would just be a quote but it's not obviously this piece too the more he writes the more he shows his ignorance of like yeah. some of this is is just malfeasance and then there is just ignorance there was a point where he he said something to the equivalent of if they didn't take my company away which is, i picture like uh like it's like his toy you know like somebody but he, yeah. he said if they didn't take my company away within weeks i feel confident that we could have raised enough money to then pay back the customers but I'm going to send you that's a Wikipedia just, article about Charles Ponzi. Like, I mean, that's just, that's my whole point. That's just a Ponzi scheme. So we lost a bunch of people's money, but I could have talked some other sucker into
0: giving me yeah. some money so I can lose that money. It, it, exactly. There's a reason the keys got taken away because you don't know how to drive the Corvette, dude, and you never yep. did. Yep. It's, uh, yeah, it's frustrating. I think we should try and take a month or two off that clown. I don't want to talk about him on the pod. Okay. All right. As long as he stops writing. Two goals don't do it doodles <laughs> uh thank you everybody this is wonderful all right yeah hit us with a review find everything you need skippy um appreciate the support as we enter 23 and uh hope for some listener mail too so hit us skippy at gmail.com peace <laughs>